is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations from Season 3, Episode 25, four from our review of Nash Drug Development in 2022 with Stephen Harrison, and two from our Extrasode, a summary of Madrigal Pharmaceuticals' presentation at this spring's Liver Connect meeting. If the previous conversation was about everything we are capturing with data, this conversation touches on some of the things we're not capturing. It starts with Louise Campbell asking whether the design and management of ongoing trials will give us enough granularity to take a look at patient types and medicines and modes of action. Stephen goes on to point out all the things that we're not really managing for genotypes, microbiome, to some degree, even population groups, underrepresentation of Hispanics, blacks, and other groups that really either are more likely to have this disease or when they have it, are more likely to have it severely and rapidly. He also notes that trial design errors have killed some promising drugs and have limited use and focus on others. In the end, though, Stephen returns to some of the core positive concepts, the value of combination therapy, and looking for agents with multiple metabolic after effects and safety. At some point in this conversation, Stephen's transmission starts to fail. Uh, I wind up actually filling in some comments for him on the episode and conversation, and he winds up leaving entirely. The entire drug development dialogue, including this conversation, link actual drug development as it continues this year to some of the issues that will determine how much we learn and how well these trials suit the purposes of all the key stakeholders. It's a broad look at a pivotal issue led by the irrepressible and insightful Dr. Harrison. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Among you done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. So, Stephen, can I ask you, you described uh, such a wide-ranging sort of palette of drugs coming through, different mechanisms, which is wonderful to see because somewhere, somewhere in there, there's got to be something that's successful. Do we run the risk, because you also alluded to the fact that everybody loses liver fat in different ways or can do the same as different people will get fatty liver for different reasons. Is there a risk with such a broad spectrum and the numbers required for trials that we miss the exact phenotypes of people who respond well to certain drugs because they may or may not be getting access to that mechanism? Do you think that runs the risk of losing medication that could be effective in other groups? Or is there a way that we can combat that? Stephen Harrison. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we just tend to throw patients into the the soup and and hopefully at the end of the day, the drugs have benefit. But we don't do a great job of precision medicine, of selecting patients for particular mechanisms of action. We don't right now. we, We, as a general rule, we don't bring in genetic assessments of these patients. We don't look at P and PLA3 status. We don't look at HSD 17 beta 13 status. We don't look at polygenic risk scores. We don't look at microbiomes at baseline. And we clearly know that what causes your NASH might be different than what causes mine might be different than what causes yours. There are multiple different mechanisms to get fat in the liver and multiple different mechanisms by which that fat can lead to lipotoxicity, downstream inflammatory effects, which activate stellate cells and vice versa. There are multiple different ways to shut them down, and there are multiple different ways by which there are redundant pathways to overcome a particular blockade. For instance, we learned with Sinecrivorac that you can block that, but maybe there are other redundant pathways that get around that. So to your point, yes, we we need to get better at this. And I, I gave a talk at... Um, 
the CLDF meeting in Phoenix back in March, looking at the disparities in healthcare. And clearly, Hispanics are underrepresented in treatment trials. African Americans are, are way underrepresented in treatment trials. You can make the argument that African Americans seldom get NASH. That's true. They're the least likely ethnic group to get NASH. But when they get it, they can progress relatively rapidly. So we do need to develop drugs in that population. And there are very, very few data points from which to point to there. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we saw it's not just the it's not just that particular aspect, Louise, that that troubles me. It's also, I think, good drugs are being put out to the graveyard because of the way they were read histopathologically. Look at MSDC-062K, a mitochondrial pyruvate carrier modulator that we published this paper in J-Hepatol that the way the biopsies were read is non-traditional. So the traditional way is you read a baseline, you read an end of treatment, and then you look for differences between the two. But because we were concerned about temporal bias, we had the baseline biopsy reread in that trial. And when you reread those biopsies, the pathologist downgraded the baseline biopsy. I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was up to a quarter of the patients would have been excluded had that repeat baseline biopsy been read as the first biopsy. So obviously the study did not meet its primary endpoint. After Stephen noted that the study did not meet its primary endpoint, he said that when they went back and looked at it, as they did and reported in the paper, if you just took the baseline without comparing it to the end of treatment number, there was a statistically significant difference between the baseline and the end of treatment, post-treatment data, and it was consistent in a dose-response manner. So Stephen then went on to note that if that occurred, the drug would be in phase three trials right now if they had done what was typical as compared to what they thought was going to be this improvement. He finally went on back to Louise's point, and he noted that we need to improve our ability to select the right patients for the right trials, in part by learning how to interpret histopathology better. And he wraps up by noting that, as he says, and I quote, until the day we are looking at a non-invasive test, we need to continue to refine our methodology such that we don't leave good drugs behind. So does that offer potential opportunities? If you fail an FXR, that you could enroll, that population may well then enroll into a GLP-1, for example, because they've already failed one mechanism. So we know that they're not responsive potentially. So you take that rich population that we've already tried and use a different mechanism and we can work, I suppose it's selection, you naturally bring it out. And I know that would be an expensive way to do it, but it rolls into those other mechanisms. Stephen provides a fairly rich, detailed response to Louise's question. He says, look, this is what combination therapy is all about. You can do sequential therapy. Let's say the 10 years down the line, you look through crystal ball, we've got three or four different FD approved therapies. Each is monotherapy. They're not approved in combination yet. So you treat with the first one, you look at it three, six months down the line, you see what you've got. And maybe they haven't normalized their liver chemistry test. Maybe there's still some fat. Maybe their Pro-C3 or, or ELF or FAST or MESH scores or Methib or whatever haven't improved enough. So you need to pivot to a second drug. If they improve somewhat, add the drug. If not, maybe even replace. Hard to say. But you do that with the second drug. If that doesn't provide the necessary improvement, then a third, maybe even a fourth. And he says, ultimately, we've got to have these combinations to get at multiple different mechanisms within an individual liver synergistically. Because ultimately, one patient might be targeted by a mechanism or two or three, and another patient might be targeted by a different mechanism or combination of mechanisms. What we want to do is to define the set of mechanisms for each individual patient that will serve that patient best, and then prescribe combination therapies to address each mechanism in that patient's set. Stephen concludes, I think that's where we'd like to be. Jörn Schattenberg. No, I, I mean, this is going to be difficult. We don't want to have 
patients fail and then enroll them in the next trial. So we need better NITs to predict that maybe um, based on the MOA. And I think genetics could be one way. Stephen's detailed a lot of studies upcoming, but there are also some targeting certain genetic modifications, which I think could be very interesting because patients are selected based on the presence of these. And if you then target the therapeutic directly at it, I think that's something very interesting to me in, in the field here. And the other thing that we've seen, Stephen, is even if the FXR failed, they, then they're sometimes carried forward as a combination regimen. It might be related to some of the you know pitfalls you're mentioning. Or you know, think about the Alder Furman. We, we all think it showed effect on NITs that kind of moved the right way. Now, if you have a good combination partner, I would not say this is a drug that's ineffective, but it could be a great combination partner for something that addresses an, a complementary MOA pitching to then higher uh, treatment responses. So again, as you mentioned, that the failures lead the path forward, and we've learned many aspects, including you know what we want to do better in, in reading out the primary endpoint of these trials, augmented with AI, for example. And, and as such, I know with all the data that's backing up and giving us support, I see this on a strong pathway forward. Yeah, and all that makes sense to me. One of the questions I was having was whether there is, in fact, a design or how we get to a design. As you commented, people fail on FXR, maybe go into a combination therapy. Who's pursuing that path, or Bjorn or Stephen? How broadly is that kind of a path being pursued now? And do we have all of the tools, both in terms of the NITs and in terms of trial design theory, to be able to use that as a path to approval for a combination or a monotherapy? Is that, or is that likely to happen? In response to my question, Stephen notes that we're not really there yet. We still have a ways to go. I mean, the idea is we have to get our first drug across the finish line before we can figure out how to enhance the use of that drug. Probably need two or three drugs across the finish line before we can think formally about combination therapy as a reality in practice. Now, having said that, Stephen points out, there are several companies who are acquiring or developing multiple assets in-house right now and beginning to look at combination therapy. Turns is a good example of that. Nova Nordisk is combining semaglutide with an FGF21 in one trial, and Gilead, Nova, Nordisk together are combining the FXR agonist Silifexor, the AAC inhibitor of Fricosostat with semaglutide, which as we've mentioned before, is a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Now, that trial's recently been published for advanced fibrosis, and they're starting a serotic trial using the same combination now. In general, though, he concludes, most of the companies in late-stage development are monoasset companies like Madrigal, Inventiva, Acaro, Bio89, others, Intercept with beacolic acid. So, he says, they're really just trying to get their first drug across the line and get sales going so that they can improve their cash flow, their stock prices, etc. So, right now, that's where most of the phase three companies are at. And until we get drugs and approval, he finishes, we're going to have to let the field sort itself out. But combination therapy is clearly where we're headed. I was going to ask you, we talked a lot last year about cirrhosis as a path to faster approval. And as we see studies going forward and people starting to look at things from a cirrhosis window, I wonder if you'd like to, or or both of you, would like to comment on how we see that as an approval path these days compared to, say, a year ago. So from my perspective, there's clearly more activity in that arena. Stephen mentioned some of the trials. There is one on my way that we haven't discussed, which is a HEATSHOCK protein 47 and a very innovative drug delivery directly to the liver. And as such, I'm seeing more drug trials in that arena. Stephen mentioned the galactin, which looks at the prevention of varices. Some trials look at the regression of fibrosis and um, taking these forward in, in more advanced disease stages or in more advanced clinical trial stages. The nice thing about it is we could get rid of biopsies because either you know HPPG, which is not favored uh, or also accepted as an as an, uh, surrogate, but we're looking at endpoints, preventable endpoints, preventing of the progression to uh, significant varices or preventing the progression 
to uh, decompensation, which I think is one way we do it. And as Stephen discussed, there is some phase three studies that are taking that along in parallel to their phase three non-serotic trial. And this is something that came out of that FDA podcast that was, I believe, February 21, where they came up with the idea to develop that in parallel. And I think in, in the aftermath, we started to discuss this, and I'm seeing that in certain, uh, in certain. I think it's picking up the cirrhotic uh, treatment landscape. What is the HVPG issue exactly? HVPG is very closely correlated to outcomes, and it predicts future decompensation, bleeding, and mortality. So I think as such, it's a very strong test. The issue with HVPG is, of course, as if you'd like with biopsy, there's a certain variability to it, depending on who does the test. Is it well enough standardized? Now, it's well-defined. So in optimal setting, um, you're able to replicate these findings. But if you're starting with study centers that are unexperienced or do not have the training, you get more variability in there. And I, you know, if I'm thinking back to the Amrikasan studies, which used HVPG, uh, we saw some of that variability um, at baseline and, and and through the clinical trial. And as such, that's something that's always thought of being a little bit, you know, a downside to using that test. On the other hand, it's even more than biopsy closely linked to clinical outcomes, which are highly relevant. And as such, they're still being pursued. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with Stephen and Professor Quentin Anstey discussing what we've learned in the past year about non-invasive testing, histopathology, and best practices in diagnostics. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>